Today is a super fun interview with Chi Pham, who's a plant-based athlete. If you go to her Instagram, fit underscore fam, you will find that she is an Ironman triathlete. She believes in diversity in sports. She's Vietnamese and proud, and she's a UX designer at Google. And she got her master in public health at Berkeley. So go Bears! What I loved about this conversation is that we touch upon the standards of beauty for an Asian American woman that strong was not necessarily what was considered beautiful by our family of origin. We talk about being plant-based and how different that was, especially if you grew up in an environment where meat was seen as a status symbol or as something that our parents didn't get growing up. So of course they were going to buy it and feed it to their children. And then talking about equity in healthcare with the work that she does. And of course, she's in Hawaii. So it's such a wonderful, incredible tie to the place that my heart feels like it belongs to. I'm excited for you to listen to what she has to say, to hopefully experience a bit of that Hawaiian mana and that Hawaiian spirit, and to walk away with maybe a bit more motivation to pursue anything that it is that you want to do, even if perhaps your family of origin doesn't fully understand. You'll also hear this beautiful story about how she met her parents halfway in understanding that sometimes the way that they approach us as their children isn't out of spite or lack of desire to understand where we're coming from. It's genuinely their lived experience has been so different from ours. And for us to expand our awareness and understanding of their experience and to have more compassion for that can be so profound and healing and connective. In a future interview that I will have with a multicultural hero's journey coach, she explains a bit about how she healed her relationship with her mother in learning how to better understand the context in which her parents were approaching her. And so I hope that today's interview and the future interviews that you hear from the guests that I bring on offer a different lens for you to live your life. Enjoy today's conversation. Welcome to the Fuck Saving Face podcast. I'm your host, Judy Tsui, and together we'll explore mental and emotional health for Asian Americans, especially breaking through any taboo topics. Life may not always be pretty, but it is indeed beautiful. Let's make your story beautiful today. Well, welcome to the Fuck Saving Face podcast, where we talk about all things taboo when it comes to being Asian American so we can break through those topics and really help redefine what it means to be Asian in America today. So I'm really excited because I have Chi Fam here today, and she is a plant-based athlete. So if you go to her Instagram, you'll see that you know she speaks about diversity in sports. She's Vietnamese and you know, talks about racing and we'll dive into some of the preconceived feedback that our Asian parents tend to give when we pursue things that they don't think like a girl should do, quote unquote. And also if I sound a little funny, it's because I have a cold, but it's all good. And I'm going to turn it over to Chi. Are you still in Hawaii right now, by the way? I am. I am. Aloha. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So anytime that I speak with anybody in Hawaii, I'm like, oh, please share that Hawaiian aloha spirit with me. I miss living there for sure. But I wanted to turn it over to you because, you know, one of the things also that you featured recently, you work at Google, you're a UX designer. And when it comes to this idea of diversity and equity, that's one of the things that, you know, I've only become new to understanding this idea that there isn't equity when it comes to healthcare and representation and clinical studies and things like that. So I'd love for you to talk a bit about, you know, your 
experience working at Google and then as a triathlete. So I'm just going to turn it over to you to organically introduce yourself. <laughs> Great. <laughs> hello, hello, everyone. My name is Chi. Yeah, as I mentioned, I currently work on a Google.org fellowship, which is basically Google works with nonprofits or government or um, any foundations that are trying to do something in tech for the greater good. And they kind of get together this whole cohort of Googlers across, you know, different functions. So they have engineers and marketing folks and designers. And I joined the team as a, a user experience designer. And our goal was to build a data dashboard for the Morehouse School of Medicine in order to show all of the health disparities that communities of color face throughout the US. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, to make policy in order to address a lot of these inequities, uh, policymakers and policy influencers are turning more and more towards data, right? They, they want to make sure that they're targeting the right communities, that their money is going to the right places, and that they can, you know, justify budgets and spending and all of that stuff with data. But of course, the problem is data is very messy and data is often incomplete. So even if you do have data, especially for communities of color, that data is not disaggregated. It's often misclassified. It's often not even collected. And so a big part of the dashboard that we really wanted to emphasize was not only surfacing, you know, here's the data we do have, but also calling out, here's the data that we don't have that really mm -hmm. hinders our understanding of the entire picture, which is really, uh, I think, like a just not common in mm -hmm. um, data dashboards. And it was really awesome to work with folks who were so equity focused in making sure like, hey, when you show data for Asians, you're actually lumping together, you know, over 19 different origin groups mm -hmm. and you're just calling it Asian, which is like, it doesn't tell you the picture of like how Indian Americans are different from, you know, folks from Cambodia or different from folks from Laos and Vietnam. And it's like, yeah, just, Disaggregation is a big thing that is pretty problematic in data. But yeah, anyway, long story long, it's very cool. It's called the Health Equity Tracker. <laughs> Anyone can check it out. It's a healthequitytracker.org. But yeah, it just launched last week. So pretty exciting. That's awesome. I love hearing that. Thank you for sharing. Can you talk a little bit about your mm -hmm. upbringing? You know, you mentioned that you're Vietnamese. And so I'd love to hear mm -hmm. about like kind of your family story and how you, yeah, how you were raised, where you were raised, all that good stuff. Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Yeah, so we're, I'm, I'm Vietnamese and my family lived in South, in the South Vietnam, in Saigon. And so my grandfather actually fought in the Vietnam War um, in the South Vietnamese Army, which is uh, the side that the United States of America like supported. But after the war ended, uh, that was the side that lost. So it became like pretty dangerous, pretty difficult to live. And that's also, you know, what kind of spurred the mass exodus in the 80s and 90s of lots of Vietnamese people trying to leave the country because mm. it yeah, it was just so broken after the war and people were essentially just desperate to start a new life. And so, you know, my parents tried to leave Vietnam via boat a couple of times. They were never successful via boat because, you know, there's pirates, there's police. Mm. It was it's an extremely dangerous journey. I know lots of other Vietnamese families have tried and my dad actually lost a brother on one of these mm. boat trips. And so, yeah, there's just a lot of history there. Eventually they 
it kind of settled into like, all right, we're in Vietnam, we can't leave. And then sometime in the 90s, I think the, the U.S. opened up an asylum program for lots of Vietnamese refugees. And they, after the war ended, they realized they're like, oh man, the, the country's in pretty bad shape. We'll grant a bunch of asylum to a bunch of refugees in the 80s and 90s. And so I think that was another way of the folks leaving the country and coming over to the U.S. through uh, like legal sponsorship. And so that's how my, my family ended up in America. We ended up in San Diego, which actually has a pretty big kind of entrenched in that community, you know, community that just really stuck together. And yeah, so I, I grew up speaking Vietnamese. My grandparents raised me because my parents were, you know, working multiple jobs, trying to learn English at the same time um, and just trying to take care of my brother. And my brother went to preschool pretty much as soon as he could because, mm -hmm. you know, they were just trying to like keep my brother and I as busy as possible mm -hmm. while they had to work really long hours. And yeah, I mean, we, uh, <laughs> which I think is like, you know, uh, I think one of the resounding lessons that my parents stressed to me over and over again growing up was, you know, you can't really count on a lot in life sometimes, but the thing you can count on is family. And, mm. you know, family is the most important thing that will always have your back, essentially. Mm. And so that that is like, if I could sum up my childhood, it was not plentiful or bountiful in terms of, you know, physical possessions or, you know, extracurricular activities or anything like that. But I never, I for sure felt loved above anything else. And I, oh, I'd say that's like so a pretty valuable. strong, <laughs> a yeah. strong testament to, you know, immigrant parents who, immigrant and refugee parents who just basically sacrifice everything that they know in their lives for just mm -hmm. like a shot for their children to succeed, which is incredibly humbling. And I think, of course, incredibly scary sometimes mm -hmm. as a child of that, you know, yeah. um, I'm sure sometimes I feel like it's almost too much pressure, right? It's yeah. like, oh my gosh, how will I ever repay that kind of debt? Yeah, I, that's definitely something I still struggle with and something that I, as I'm growing and learning, it's it's not about ever repaying that debt because like, I, I don't think I ever will <laughs> be able to, you know, but more about just understanding. Yeah. Just like understanding my parents and why they do the crazy things that they do out of, <laughs> out of love and um, well, just trying to spend as much time. Yeah. Yeah. It's wonderful because I feel like the story that you're sharing is like, usually it kind of goes one of two ways. It's if you come from immigrant parents because of what they experience, they experience so much trauma, they then, you know, pass that trauma down and it can be a very fractured, broken family, or you come from trauma and then you just become super tight knit, very, very close together. And I think that that's what your story represents. And also just this kind of quote unquote burden or understanding of what your parents gave up. I went and I live abroad in Taiwan and in China. Mm -hmm. And so like I thought about it, you know, what it would be like if I tried to start a whole life here, not having the primary language, you know, all of these kinds of things. Um, right. It would have been very, very difficult. And then, you know, just being a parent in and of itself is extremely challenging. So to move <laughs> a whole like family somewhere else. So I think it's remarkable <laughs> that you had that experience. And yeah, thank you for sharing. And I love just this idea of, you know, 
because I think a lot of us, well, for me, I was raised kind of comparing myself to all of my white counterpart friends and kids and seeing how much Mm -hmm. they had. And then, you know, um, on the surface, sometimes we had some, sometimes we didn't usually more often than not, we didn't. And so it was easy to compare, but then having that reframe of, you know, there are different core values or different ways that we can have abundance and wealth. And I think having that love and that support Mm -hmm. is such a wonderful thing that you walked away with. I'm curious too, because, you know, you came from this uh, traditional upbringing and then you moved into two interesting things. You moved into becoming a triathlete and then becoming plant-based. So (laughs) both of those things are very different. I, you and I, when we, before we got on this recording had mentioned, you know, when I just out of curiosity, because I always thought it was so graceful and beautiful, I wanted to learn how to do the butterfly. So I was taking like a 5 a.m. swim class at Santa Monica College when I had already, like I was in my like mid to late 20s and it was a 5 a.m. class, but I tan really easily. So I'm like slathering sunblock on and everybody else is like, what are you doing? The sun's not out. I'm like, you don't understand. I get dark in five seconds. And of course, inevitably, I would go over to my parents and they were like, why are you so tan? Why are you so dark? Like, just, you know, so frustrated about it. So <laughs> there was that. And I remember trying to, you know, I went to Berkeley. I met a bunch of hippies, like not to say that, you know, only hippies are vegetarian or vegan, but it was the first time I was really exposed to it on a larger <laughs> scale. And like restaurants that cater to like vegan menus. And I was like, oh, I'm going to give it a shot. And then I went home and I was like, I'm not eating meat. And my parents almost laughed in my face. They would like literally <laughs> serve me bowls of food with meat in it, regardless of whatever my preference was. So I'm curious about your story yeah. around that. I'm just chuckling because I've just been nodding the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's funny. I, I will say on the plant-based thing, I, I've been plant-based like on and off the last Yeah, I don't know, maybe like five years. I don't take like a very strict approach to it, partly because of my mother. And um, in in the sense that, you know, I remember the first time I ever told her that I was vegetarian and she was like, "Uh, okay, yeah. She just like, it just didn't process. And then that later that night she served like tofu for dinner. And then there was little, there was ground beef in it. And I was like, mom, like we just had this conversation like two hours ago and you were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's like, yeah, but the beef is so small. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. So she, in her head, she was like, yeah, but it's just like little flecks of ground beef. It's cool. It's just like eat it. You won't, you won't even notice it. basically. Yeah. But yeah, it's just interesting. I, I just feel like, you know, she grew up in Vietnam and she grew up so poor that meat was such a, a luxury item. So part of me thinks that like now we have the means to be able to afford meat. So like, why wouldn't we eat it? And part of it is also like, uh, you know, the old school conception is like, you need meat to be strong and you need to be strong if you want to compete. And, you know, meat builds muscle and that's the only way you're going to ever build muscle. So I think, yeah, my parents continue to be concerned about (laughs) whether or not I'm eating meat. Yeah, including my race. This I have a race coming up this Saturday, and my parents are like, "Are you even going to be able to finish this race? You haven't <laughs> eaten any meat in like months." But yeah, uh, long story long, my parents don't get it, and that's okay. I, th- I think we're now in a point of we're like, okay, like agree to disagree. And <laughs> if my mom ever cooks anything at home, and I'm home and it has meat, I'll I'll, I'll usually eat it just because. Mm. it's like my mom's cooking and mm-hmm. they're 
it's just like not worth the effort of yeah. like arguing about it. <laughs> yeah. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, totally. I understand. Well, I mean, even just as a general like false perception, I think. Um, I remember when I was teaching yoga a lot, I actually went to Brazil and I was both covering the story and then just happened because of my yoga background, kind of like training some of the athletes there and doing some yoga classes and whatnot. And they were doing a triathlon. And so these elite athletes, one of them asked me like, wait, you're a yoga teacher and you eat meat. How does that work? I thought like your whole yogic belief was that like, you know, non-harm and like all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I mean, like ethically, I always felt like I agree with you and then physically, maybe because I wasn't doing it, you know, with all the right science behind it or whatnot, my body just didn't respond to it as well. And, you know, the more that I dive into like biohacking and those kinds of things, like it's helpful to understand every body is different and your needs are going to be different. Right. But even as you're this, you know, endurance athlete, I'm sure not just from the Asian American population or the Asian population, but just other people are also curious. How do you make it work? How do you, you know, do the plant-based diet as you're doing these endurance sports? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I, I definitely feel like everybody is different and it, it takes so much time to figure out like, what does your body actually need? And mm -hmm. I think after college, I did have this unfortunate phase where I tried a lot of diets. Mm -hmm. uh, and I say unfortunate because a lot of the diets were motivated from a place of, you know, self-hate like I, I wanted a certain body type and so I would try these different diets but the good thing that came out of that phase was I did end up trying a lot of different diets and I could tell pretty easily like which diets I would not be able to sustain or which dieted on or which diets I was just like constantly hungry mm -hmm. and so I feel like that period of trial and error has yeah led me to like where I am today where I just eat when I'm hungry I try mm -hmm. to have like a, a good balance of you know, carbs and vegetables and protein, I make sure to have protein at every meal. And I try to make sure that each protein that I have is, you know, like different, like I'm not just <laughs> slamming tofu every day. <laughs> uh, you know, like really trying to like mix up and have variety in your diet. And if I'm still hungry after a meal, I'll just eat more. Um, and I, I do try to make sure that the foods that I'm eating are as whole or like as least processed as possible so like instead of like the fake sausages I'll I'll try to have more lentils or mm. beans or yeah just like whole foods but of course there's always the factor of convenience and uh, laziness sometimes that I'm mm -hmm. just like okay I'm just gonna eat some <laughs> eat some of these sausages yeah and just like trying to pay attention to how I feel week to week. If I am feeling tired or sluggish, I'll, you know, I'll try to eat a little bit more protein or something. But um, generally speaking, I, it's not like I, I, I don't, I don't measure or track any, anymore. Um, I used to because like when you're first starting out, you don't like who knows how many hundred grams of carbs is, you know, but I kind of found that that led to a lot of like uh, disordered eating mm. tendencies and behavior. So I, I kind of had to step away from that. Mm. What made yeah. you decide to become plant-based in the first place? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, <laughs> the first time I was ever like vegetarian for a solid period was after I graduated college, I lived in DC and I worked at a nonprofit and I, it was just, I just became vegetarian because it was cheaper. I, like mm. buying <laughs> mm -hmm. beans and rice is cheaper than buying, you know, chicken and mm -hmm. other things. So at first it was just out of necessity because my nonprofit salary was like so small. 
But then I started doing a little bit more research about kind of the environmental impact mm-hmm. of eating uh, plant-based and just like the wild water usage that, you know, meat requires and mm-hmm. how resource intensive it is. It's just, it's just bonkers to me. So that was like one aspect. Another aspect is just learning more about the animal industry and, yeah, the lives of those animals and chickens and just like crazy how divorced we are from mm-hmm. like the actual process that totally food takes to come from like, you know, the land to our plate. It's like, yeah, it's so yeah, we're so divorced from it. So yeah, so I guess budget reasons, environmental <laughs> reasons, you know, animal practices. And then only recently was it kind of more motivated about fitness, because I also mm-hmm. thought like, oh, maybe like, I don't know, I, I could do yoga while being plant-based, but I'm, I'm not sure if I can, you know, bodybuild or yeah. do endurance, like endurance sports with it. Um, but, you know, I just started doing a little bit more research and, you know, all those documentaries that they tell you to watch, I watched them, <laughs> uh, which was like the motivating piece, I think. I, yeah. So I just which figured documentaries it's a, for this. Game Changers was the last one that I watched. And then um, there's a couple ones about like what the cow, I think, mm-hmm. and a couple. Yeah, I don't remember them off the top of the head, but yeah, I there's a book that I remember like, reading called like Forks Over Knives, which was really Yeah, okay. That was also yeah. the one too. Yeah. Yeah. I love that author. Yeah, I, kind of I loved his too. other books. That's how I got into that one. But yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. Cool. Yeah. Uh, right now, this current iteration is just like me. I guess I I view being plant-based as a a means for me to also be a little bit more connected with my food and how Mm -hmm. my food impacts how I feel. Surprisingly, I I feel like growing up as an athlete, you would think that you would learn all these skills, but I actually think growing up and being a competitive swimmer, you learn to ignore all your body cues. Mm -hmm. Like you ignore being sore, you ignore being tired, um, you push your body past its comfort level like every day and, and then you're so hungry afterwards you just like shovel as much food as you possibly can as quickly as you can mm. um, you know and I don't know like I just didn't really learn anything about nutrition yeah you would think that athletes would be super in tune with their body and they are in some respects but I do feel like the the mind-body connection and at least like being in tune with how food impacts your body and performance were definitely things that I didn't learn growing up as an athlete. And so part of my diet or my, you know, how I eat now is just like trying to reestablish that relationship. I love that you're saying that because I think that growing up for a lot of us, whatever culture you came from, your mind-body connection is not something that's really honored or understood or encouraged for you to learn about and know how to like read yourself. And so especially like from an Asian culture, if you're taught to be deferent to elders or to like really push your needs aside, I think that that continues to move even further back so that you just completely divorce yourself. So I like that you're, you know, relearning and that it's never too late to start establishing new patterns and new awarenesses, right. you know, um, new ways of being healthy. And we're, it, that's going to forever change throughout our lives. Like as our bodies change, right. we're going to need different things. And I also think that, you know, it is a luxury to some extent to be able to think about what you're consuming. Like if you have limited options because of mm-hmm. budget, that's like mm-hmm. one thing. But I think as right. we grow in our resources, in our financial states, like whatever it is, I think it's also 
partly us being responsible as humans and members of the community to also broaden the awareness around the impact of our spending or uh, the impact of, you know, the foods that we take in. Um, I'm only now learning because of the community that I'm around these ideas of regenerative farming, you know, and really like thinking about purchasing. If you are going to buy meat, buy it from a farmer who's like not only ethically treating the animals, but doing it in a way where it's fostering and nurturing like the land. And so, again, I know full well that these are kind of like luxury states to get to of like to have the time and space in your own life to have the capacity to do that and then to be able to purchase these things which unfortunately usually when you buy organic or anything else like that it's more expensive so I think that you do what you can with the means that you have um, and then it's our responsibility as like you know global citizens to just become more aware I think that you know even just learning is really helpful and again like you said you know if your mom serves you food you're going to eat it like we're not trying to be perfect but like you do what you can again Um, and so Speaking of which, you were a competitive surfer growing or a swimmer growing up. Like, can you tell me about what that was like? Because I think in my family of origin, we were not taught to pursue sports. Like that didn't even register on my radar until I was in elementary school. And then we were like playing kickball. And then one time someone was like, do you want to be the pitcher? I'm like, what's a pitcher? And so (laughs) I started pitching and I was so good at it and I loved it. It became uh-huh. my favorite thing. So then I was always the pitcher for like softball, kickball, whatever. Or like I'd be the girl playing with the boys, playing basketball at lunch, you know, like and the, none of those things were encouraged. Also, there's like a running joke in my family that my mother is so like athletically challenged <laughs> that like she tried so hard to like pass like a test. She's like a straight A student in Taiwan, but like could not pass the PE test, like tried with all her might and was just not coordinated in that way. So then because that story was told a lot, I think I just envisioned that maybe we weren't like that, but it felt so good to be strong. It felt so good to be one of the girls doing like the boy sports that maybe like nobody knew about. And yeah, so I'd love to hear your experience with that. Before I lose this train of thought on like our previous thread of conversation about like the mind body connection. And uh-huh. I, I think you had mentioned at one point, like asking yourself, like, what do I need? And I, I feel like that's an interesting question that I am really bad at asking myself. I'm sure a lot, mm-hmm. you know, we're not really, especially as women, especially as Asian women, we're not really taught to ask ourselves what we need. I, I feel yeah. like I've just been groomed from a young age to project outwards and like survey the room to like make sure that everyone else is okay. You know, what does everyone else need? And, you know, how can I help them? Blah, blah, blah. I I feel like this just came to light yesterday because my parents are here visiting in Hawaii and I, I'm asking them, you know, what, what do you guys want to do? And they just can't answer me. And I was getting frustrated because I was like, (laughs) what do you mean you don't know what you want to do? (laughs) And it just struck me that like, you know, this is not a question that they've had a luxury yes. uh, to ask themselves, you know, growing yes. up. I feel like, yeah, just having, I guess, a little more empathy for my parents that they haven't really been able to ask themselves what they want or what they truly need uh, for a lot of their lives. And so me just like springing board them, <laughs> like springing that question on them and expecting an answer right away is, I, I feel like a big that's like one of the huge difference between, you know, my generation and my parents' generation for sure. Yeah. It's also come up in my own life recently too. I mean, it just in relationship and Mm -hmm. like in relationship, trying to figure out like, oh my gosh, I am not clear about how to like know what it is that I need. And then second step express what it is that I need in a way that somebody else can hear me to try to meet that need. So like (laughs) that is, it's been a big learning because, you know, now I, 
am going to have this conversation where I imagine that on the other end, it's going to feel like all of a sudden, like you said, you're springing all this stuff on them. And they're like, whoa, whoa, where'd this come from? And meanwhile, in the back of my mind, it's like just, you know, kind of pre-wired programming of like, oh, it's like quiet murmur, quiet murmur until like, boom, like, oh my gosh, (laughs) this is what I've been trying to say. Why have, why has this been such a struggle? So I think that, you know, the fostering the mind body connection or any sort of self-awareness practice that's huge in and of itself and then the second step is also practicing and flexing that muscle of how to ask for it once you're clear on what it is that your need is I think that that's a whole other hurdle Mm -hmm. to start to learn how to like you know leap over and then you know just practicing that new groove is a very interesting feat (laughs) yeah okay I think I I shared this with you previously but I, I feel like my my parents brought me how to they took me to the pool when we were growing up because it was, you know, a free community pool mm-hmm. and um, there was like free lessons for the kids of the neighborhood. And so it was just like an activity for us, my brother and I to do. I don't think they really expected uh, us to like love it so much that we would <laughs> want to do it as like a sport. And yeah, I, I definitely remember at some point in middle school, I really wanted to be a figure skater because mm. uh, I think the Olympics had just happened and Michelle Kwan had won the Olympics. And I was like, holy moly, <laughs> this Asian woman is an athlete. I don't see them anywhere else except for figure skating. So I guess if I want to make it to the Olympics, this is the way I have to go. I, I've got to be a figure skater. And at this point, I'm like 12 or something. It's like way too late for me to start my <laughs> figure skating career. But I just distinctly remember being like, I want to go to the Olympics. I have to be a figure skater, I guess. Mm. <laughs> mm. Uh, which I think is just, you know, speaks to the importance of representation and, yeah. you know, sports and media and all of that. But anyways, I had a very brief figure skating career. It (laughs) didn't pan out. (laughs) But I I went back to swimming because I I just loved it so much. But I definitely, you know, growing up in San Diego, uh, all the pools are outdoors. So of course, I became very, very tan, very, very, it was like a deep (laughs) tan, you know. And every single time I saw my grandma, she would be like, she would just, she would give me that look and she'd be like, why is your skin so dark? (laughs) You know, be like, and then she would say things like, you know, that's not beautiful. Mm. You know, like all of Mm -hmm. these things that was confusing because, you know, it's so crazy. I, I feel growing up, you have your grandparents and your parents being like, all right, you're not beautiful. You're not, you know, your skin is getting horrible and dry and tan, but then you have like the American beauty standards Mm -hmm. where they're like, yes, tan is awesome. Mm -hmm. Tan and tone and athletic, but not too athletic. So both sides don't want you to be too buff (laughs) in the (laughs) nineties. But it was very interesting trying to navigate, like just doing something that I loved, but having it really impact my physical appearance and then having to navigate like two sets of beauty standards Mm. constantly. It was just, yeah, I, good thing. I love swimming so much. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think that that's really challenging because yeah, I distinctly have those experiences too of being super tan and then having all of my, you know, white friends, my American friends, being like, where did you get your tan from? How do you get so tan? I'm like, what are you talking about? Do you not just stand outside? Like, and then all of my, like, you know, Asian friends, like being told like, oh my gosh, look at how pale her skin is. That's so beautiful. And so I think that it's just 
such a lesson in like I remember when those Dove beauty campaigns like started and just mm. even just starting to embrace people of different sizes and colors and all of that you know I'm in marketing so I know like when there's like a marketing gimmick and all that kind of stuff and so even with that lens mm. I still was appreciating that like you said like representation I think that that's so essential to just be able to see yourself and and understand like you don't know how many times I tried to bleach my hair blonde <laughs> to try to fit into what I believed was the aesthetic of beauty only to have my hair turn orange and to be like no it's never gonna happen like I'm never gonna have that and even you know like among my western Caucasian friends like the one with curly hair wants a straight hair right. the one with straight hair wants a curly hair so it's like just a perpetual never-ending right, right. so it's all a lesson and <laughs> like learning how to feel beautiful within and feel healthy. And I try to remind my daughter, because sometimes I see her, um, you know, like really looking at herself in the mirror and like kind of like posing and stuff like that. And, you know, how much of it is like healthy self-development and how much of it, like, I don't know, because but what I do try to say is, because I want her to celebrate, you know, who she is and how she looks and all that. I don't want her to feel like you, you alluded to this, which was another thought that I wanted to follow up on is that it's hard to embrace feeling beautiful when all of your life you're told that you're not for whatever reason, you know, like mm-hmm. for your skin, not being the right tone or whatever. And then when you are trying to embrace feeling confident or beautiful and like liking, you know, your physique changing because you're doing a sport that you love, it can be hard because mm-hmm. then that scene is not humble and boastful or whatever. So you're just right. Like, it's just an interesting journey. So I try to tell my daughter, like, you know, I encourage her to celebrate, like, how she feels and how she looks. And then I also remind her, like, you know, where does your, like, inner beauty, like, your inner confidence come from? Where does your true, like, self come from? And that all comes from the inside. So let's remember to nurture that as much as anything else. Um, To try to not make things wrong, but then to, you know, Mm -hmm. from an early age, kind of nurture a different, hopefully, standard. Obviously, I'm not going to, like, take down the beauty industry, but... (laughs) It is what it is. Um, So how did you start to kind of like reconcile all of that? Like, where are you now with that? Yeah, I will say my parents, whilst they're, I'm sure my mom was like, you know, seeing me become this like tan, super shoulder heavy, like (laughs) young woman was like, oh man, like she would stick out a sore thumb in Vietnam, which I definitely (laughs) do. Uh, She was definitely always very supportive of, you know, like the fact that this is what, you know, I guess she was always supportive of swimming in terms of like how it made me feel in Mm. terms of, you know, the accomplishment that I felt when I had a good set or, you know, the new meets that I was going to when I got faster and I could qualify. She was always super supportive and super proud of, you know, whenever I would accomplish something or meet my goals or work harder towards it. So I do think she, helped me like not she she definitely held back I think in terms of you know sharing too much of you know oh man look at all these beauty standards that you're not meeting um which I I think carries into you know how I remind myself to stay grounded and like how am I feeling like Mm. do I feel stronger am I getting stronger am I you know getting mentally or emotionally or physically stronger in my training um and not getting too worried about you know do I have six-pack abs Mm. am I losing weight because you know a lot of endurance athletes try to lose weight because you know they think that if you weigh less and you have to carry less weight and then you can go faster and farther um just like really trying to remind myself that like endurance athleticism looks different on every person and um what matters is 
you know, how is my training doing? Am I recovering well? Do, am I injured? Can I sustain this pace? Am I seeing any improvements week over week? And just really trying to focus on, you know, strength is about how I feel, not how I look. And, you know, confidence is always how you feel and not how you look on the outside, at least for me, um, mm. in terms of, yeah, athleticism. But And how do you find Yeah, it's definitely sports. a struggle. <laughs> Oh, how do I find diversity in sports? Yeah. Like, how do you like, because you were talking about that, you know, you want to help represent Mm -hmm. diversity in sports. Like, how is the sports industry now um, to like, how do you see it? And where could it be improved? Yeah, um, I definitely. I feel like, yeah, it's just super white still. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, I mean, all the sports that I've done since swimming. So, you know, in college, it was all about swimming. And then after that, you know, running, climbing, cycling, swimming, and like all of triathlon as a general, everything skews very white. And I think that's one of the reasons why I hold on to my Instagram account is that Mm. I hope it showcases an athlete that doesn't look like the norm. Um, you know, I, I hope that people can see that, you know, an endurance athlete isn't this tall, skinny white man, but it can be, you know, a shorter, yeah. more muscular Asian woman. Yeah. Um, and I try to work with uh, like outdoor companies and brands that are willing to have a more diverse, mm. you know, cast or diverse models and, you know, who support athletes that don't look like the norm. Mm. Um, and so I definitely think the trend in terms of marketing is changing. Mm-hmm. Um, triathlon is uh, an extremely inaccessible and expensive sport, as I'm finding mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. And they do try to increase the number of women who participate, but it's definitely like, I mean, yeah, I, I think that's one of the things that I'm I'm struggling with now is like I, I really like doing triathlons, but it's just you have to you have to get gear for three different sports mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and like maintain that and it's just really inaccessible for a lot of people. And like mm-hmm. even the entry fee, like I found out the other day that if you qualify for the national uh, you know, the world champ, not, not national, international world championships for the uh, full Ironman it, that's based in Hawaii. You have to pay a thousand dollars for the entry fee, oh. even if, you know, you, yeah, it's like you worked so hard, you've qualified, you have a slot and then you have to pay $1,000 on that day to get mm. to reserve your slot. If you don't mm. make that payment, then they give it to the next person, which is like, Jeez wildly inaccessible like how many people can just be like damn yes thousand bucks let's go right (laughs) now put it on my credit card I don't know so that's a something I'm struggling with something that I'm I'm kind of feeling called to try to help I don't know how so if anyone who's listening knows of like (laughs) programs to help get people into triathlon or running or cycling or swimming or anything like that please let me know because I would love to be involved yeah, that's awesome. I mean, like that, those costs don't take into consideration, like the travel costs, um, you know, the training costs, all of those kinds of things. So yeah, I think that what you're saying, creating more equity in that is amazing too. So there are all ways that we can be involved. But yes, anybody who's listening, who has resources, let's like uh, get rallied together. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> 
As we're wrapping up this interview, I'm curious, um, along the ideas of fuck saving face of really breaking through taboos and just trying to like reframe maybe something that we've thought about for a long time in one way or just something that we wish people would know, what's one idea that you would like to share? I would like to break the idea that an Asian woman is this, you know, meek, subservient, you know, person who is always in the background, like meeting other places, uh, other people's needs. I, mm. I want, I want people to know that we are strong and mm. we are powerful and we are kind and compassionate and we care about other people. But once we, you know, start to channel some of that energy into, you know, meeting our own needs and, um, you know, figuring out how to empower ourselves, I just think, you know, Asian women are unstoppable, whether that's in <laughs> sports, whether that's being, you know, the next CEO at a company or, you know, building products or, you know, launching podcasts, like we are unstoppable. And we're not, you know, just we're not just I love the folks that. who are going to ace a math test. Yes. And, <laughs> and you know, go to Harvard Medical School and then, you oh know, quit and like, you know, become yeah. housewives. That's, yeah. I mean, there's no. definitely some folks who do that. Oh, oh well, you know, that's <laughs> sorry. I, yeah, I don't mean to no. shame those choices. Oh, no, not at all. I mean, to each their own. But I definitely think it's valuable to break the idea that, you know, Asian women are meek or that they're just sex symbols or any sort of fetishization around that. But that just like everybody else, we are human and we have needs and we struggle and we overcome and we triumph. And so I love what it is that you're saying. And um, it was putting such a big smile on my face because I could feel the energy behind what it was that you were speaking <laughs> about. So like, that's amazing. So if anybody wants to follow up with you, where can they follow up with you? They can follow me on Instagram at FitFam. Usually, you know, you can slide into my DMs if you want. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, I guess Instagram is the main way to stay in touch or yeah, that's it. Awesome. Well, I'm really excited. Definitely check out her Instagram. I love the, um, you know, images that you post. You're in beautiful places doing like very like, you know, just inspiring physical things, which again, <laughs> if you were raised with like, in the environment that I was where you didn't realize like sports could be a thing they could really enjoy. It's so fun. It's so fun to feel <laughs> strong and to like, you know, it's so yeah. fun. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for today. Again, season one is almost done. I already have incredible interviews scheduled for season two. And I'm just going to take a bit of time in the month of August and September to revamp, rejuvenate, and come back anew. If there are things that you've loved, please go share them on iTunes or any of the podcast platforms that you're listening on. If there are topics that you'd like me to cover, then please feel free to reach out to me. Hello at Fuck Saving Face. That's fuck without the U. And I would love to hear from you anytime you share. It's so meaningful to me. It reminds me of why I'm doing this. And as always, word of mouth is so wonderful. So if you want to share this with anybody in your life, please hit that share button on whatever you're listening to. I recently took my daughter to a live musical performance here in San Diego. It was wonderful. It was an outdoor theater. There was all this grass. The kids can run around. And at the end of it, one of the musical directors had encouraged us to share by word of mouth about their performance and about the play, the Moonlight stage opening up again. And my daughter really hooked onto that word and loved it so much that for the next 10 minutes, as we're gathering our things and getting ready to go with my friends and their kids, 
she kept saying, word of mouth, word of mouth. And it was like the best thing that she had ever heard. So now every time I say word of mouth, that's what I think of. Have a beautiful rest of your day, wherever you are in the world. And I look forward to you joining me in our mindfulness practice on Friday. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you liked what you heard and know someone in your life who might also benefit from hearing this episode, please feel free to share it with them. Also, if you'd like to support our show, you can make a one-time donation at fucksavingface.com or you can make a recurring donation at patreon.com forward slash fucksavingface. That's fuck without the U. Subscribe today to stay tuned for all future episodes.